before we go before the Lord and listen to his word, um, I want to invite you just to be in silence for a moment and then let me pray for us as we do open God's word together. And so, O Lord, because we flounder and because we wonder and because our eyes are jaundiced to see your point of view by our own self-centeredness, because our hearts resist abandoning our own stuff for you, in these next few minutes let your Holy Spirit so work in our hearts that we would hear your word and that it would penetrate our souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, during, during this summer season, we've been um, looking at various encounters that Jesus has had with people along the road of his ministry, um, taking note of the fact that with every person that Jesus meets, they leave that encounter transformed or different. They're never the same again. And we see that in many different instances. And we're going to continue down that path today, uh, but it's going to take a little bit of an odd turn, an odd twist, because the person that Jesus is going to meet with today is himself. And we're going to spend some time looking at the inner life of Jesus Christ, his struggles, his concerns, his fears, his deepest thoughts, his motivations. Because in the story that will set the context for today's message, Jesus is wrestling with the most agonizing decision that he ever had to make. And so with that in mind, listen to the word of God from Matthew 26. And then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And then going a little bit further, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, my Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, 
and let us go. Um, some of you know, maybe many of you know, that, that I didn't start out my career uh, thinking I was going to be in ministry. Um, I, I graduated from college with an education degree, and, and I, I wanted my whole life to coach and to teach, unfortunately, probably in that order. I found out that to be able to coach, I had to teach. I got a, a teaching job. I got my dream job, the job I always wanted, the job. Man, if I could get a job like this, my life would be set. So I got a teaching job. I was teaching high school uh, seniors, U.S. government, very excited. They couldn't wait to get there every day. <laughs> my only leverage point with them was I had to pass my class to graduate. So many of them snuck by with a D minus. And I was coaching football and basketball. I was having a great time. This was my dream. This is what I'd always wanted. But something in it just wasn't quite settling right. I couldn't figure out. It was a little bit like going out to a, to a great restaurant, you know, Burger King, whatever. And um, you know, going out to a great restaurant and having a gourmet meal and eating the meal and everything tastes great. Everything's prepared fine. It's absolutely wonderful. But it just doesn't quite settle right with you. And I had my dream job, but it just wasn't quite settling right with me. And I, I wasn't sure what that meant. I began having discussions with people about it. Becky and I started talking about what that might mean. And, and, and it was hard for me to get these words out of one point. I thought, what would you think about me going into ministry? And then I picked her up off the floor. <laughs> I mean, so we started to explore what that might mean. And one of the ways, I'm, I'm, I'm a very practical person. I, you know, I don't have a lot of philosophical gymnastics that I do when I make decisions. I'm a very pragmatic person. So one of the things we decided to do, let's go talk to some people who know us really well, who can talk some sense into you. Um, so we, we met with different people. Um, and and two, of the, two of the people who had the most influence on my life um, and who probably knew me the best were our college chaplain and his wife and the football coach at Hope and his wife. And we met with them. And the college chaplain was very great, very encouraging. Oh, that'd be a great thing. In fact, if you go to seminary, I'll, um, I'll, you know, you can come and work with me, and you know, we can we can work together in the chaplain's office. He can do that. Da, 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 da. He never mentioned salary, and I never asked what was free. Um, and then when they met with our college football coach and his wife, we, we shared the news, and they began to cry. And I said, Well, I didn't know this would be that painful of a thing to think about me in ministry, but I guess. I mean, we were really looking for someone to talk us out of it. It wasn't what we really wanted to do. But the reason they began to cry was because they said that this is something we've been praying about for over two years. I haven't prayed about it at all. But because of their prayer life, God had worked in my heart to unsettle me. And so, you know, we applied. That's something you have to do. That's, if you don't get into seminary, you can't go into ministry, right? Another pragmatic step, we got accepted and, and we started. And so, struggle over, right? Wrestling done. We're in. Ready to go. I wish that was the case. That, that was all the external stuff that had to take place. But the internal struggling continued. Seriously. What am I thinking about? I have my dream job. I know how to teach, kind of. I know how to coach. I don't know anything about how to do ministry. I've only seen it done by other people. I'm not sure what I'm getting myself into. Can I handle the academic load? Am I going to make it? And then when I'm done with seminary, what church would want me what I be able to work in a church? What I be able to do the work? All oh, the wrestling, the inner wrestling, the inner turmoil, the ongoing wrestling that was going on and making this decision. 
and God was always a part of that process. And my guess is that, you know, that's not any different for me than it has been for you in your life. You've had things you've had to wrestle with internally and maybe still do, right? The constant wrestling when we begin a new job. Is this the right thing? Did I make the right decision? The second guessing, the changing of careers, the thinking about whether I, I should get married or not, the thinking about relationships we're in, whether we should continue in them or no, the anticipation of a difficult conversation that you have to have with a friend or a colleague or a family member that you know is just going to be really hard and you get this big knot in your stomach and you don't really want to do it, but you know it's the right thing to do. This is the kind of wrestling that we have to do. Choosing a college. The inner turmoil, the constant wrestling with our fears and our doubts and our insecurities. And for many of us, it's an ongoing process. Every day starts that way and may even end that way. The constant internal wrestling. Now Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record the story of Jesus praying in Gethsemane, which is interesting. And they almost all record it exactly the same way. It's one of the few stories of Jesus' ministry that is consistent in all of the Gospels. And they remind us that it's been a very exhausting week for Jesus and the disciples. Five or six days of high drama in Jerusalem, a victorious entrance, a significant conflict with religious leaders, powerful teaching that takes place in the life of Jesus, intimate moments with his disciples. All sorts of things are going on during this week, the kind of thing that stresses you out and makes you physically and mentally and emotionally and spiritually exhausted. Jesus knew where it was all leading. He knew he was headed to a cross. He knew that he was going to suffer and he was going to die. And it caused inner turmoil even in Jesus' life, even though he knew that was what was going to happen and it was the right thing to do. And whenever he was faced with a crisis, if you read the Gospels and pay attention, whenever Jesus was faced with a crisis, he always did the same thing. He went and he prayed. He went off by himself and he prayed. And he listened to God and he had this kind of a conversation with God. What, what should I do? How should I do it? Why is this happening? And if you pay close attention in the Gospels, every time Jesus goes away to pray, he comes back having made a significant and powerful decision. Jesus goes off by himself and prays, and the next thing he knows, he comes down from the mountain, and out of the hundreds of people who are listening to his teaching, he, he chooses 12 people to be his inner circle. He chooses three people to be the closest to him. Jesus always goes off to pray, and when he comes back and prays, God has given him a direction that changes the course, or that is a significant event in the life of the ministry, and this isn't any different. Jesus goes off to pray, and he takes the disciples with them and leaves many of them outside the garden. He takes the inner circle in with him, Peter, James, and John, and leaves them in a spot, and then he goes off by himself. He began to be sorrowful and troubled, it says. And then he said to the disciples, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Jesus, fully human and fully divine, has a soul that is overwhelmed with sorrow. 
that's weighing in on him, that's starting to crush him. He was in agony. The Greek word is ekthambestai, which means intense emotional state because of something causing great surprise. I don't think Jesus was surprised by this, but there was a great deal of perplexity, we're told, right? The cross is looming ahead of him. He's filled with sorrow. His soul is overwhelmed because of the perplexity of the whole thing. Well, how heavy was it? Well, Jesus went off to pray. And we're told that he prayed with such intensity that his hair was soaked, his face was wet with sweat, his clothes. He prayed with such intensity, with such overwhelming sorrow, that his sweat began to, to have blood drops in it. It's physiologically possible with the intensity that he was praying with that that could actually happen. And this was such an intense moment in the life of Jesus that blood was pouring off his brow. Now if we believe that Jesus was the Son of God and was God himself, didn't he know that he was going to die? Yes, he knew he was going to die. And if we believe that Jesus was the Son of God, didn't he also know about the resurrection? Well, yeah, he had to know about the resurrection, right? Because he was fully human, but he was also fully divine. He, he knew about the resurrection. So what's going on here? What, what's, the, what's the wrestling about if you know how it's going to end? If it knows going to be in a resurrection, why are you worried about death? I mean, I mean, so many people, and you may know some, who are in the throes of death, who are on their deathbed, and they die peacefully and joyfully because they know about the resurrection. Jesus is going to die. Isn't he going to die peacefully and joyfully because of the resurrection? Apparently not. There's something else going on here. What is it? Well, Jesus experiencing what you and I experience all the time. Remember, he's fully human, right? You could have an intellectual understanding of what's going to happen and know all about it. But when you go through the experience, then you know what it's really all about, right? Now, this is always dangerous territory for a male to walk into, but I'm me. So I do. A lot of women who are pregnant for the first time hear all sorts of stories about what it's like to give birth, right? How horrible and painful. Oh, man, you can't believe what's going to happen. And then the husbands all have stories about what happened to them in the birthing room. And, da, 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 da. and they go ahead and get pregnant anyway. They've heard all the stories, but you don't know what it's like to give birth to a baby until you've actually done it. Amen? All the ladies went, yeah, no, you got it. Okay, what I don't get is why you do it a second time. Or a third time. And some of you a fourth time. I mean, but right, you would tell me that. Well, I, I've heard all about it, but until I did it, I really didn't know what it was all about. Anybody here had a root canal? Heard about it before you went, right? Oh, it's painful. It's terrible. Yeah, and then you have one. It's painful. And it's horrible, right? Knee replacement surgery. I heard all the horror stories about knee replacement surgery. Knee replacement surgery. I didn't feel a thing when they were replacing my knee. It was amazing. Afterwards, I had to do the rehab. That was horrible. It was painful. I'm kind of a wimp. 
Jesus knew what was going to happen, but the experience was going to be something that he could only imagine. This may be one of the clearest examples of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, of what it means to be fully human and fully divine at the same time. Totally divine. He knew he was going to be taking our place on the cross. He knew he was going to suffer and die. He knew there was going to be a resurrection. He knew all that. And totally human at the same time. Horribly uncomfortable with what was going to happen. Now for those of us who are Christ followers, there, there are two aspects of discipleship um, that, that are probably at the top of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. One is love, right? When Jesus said, you know, when, they were, when Jesus was asked, what, what's the greatest commandments? Well, there's two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. We sang that earlier today. We all affirmed that. And love your neighbor as you love yourself. So love God and love others. And then the second aspect of discipleship is to be obedient. Okay. Don't just talk about loving God. Don't just talk about loving others, but be obedient and actually get engaged and do it. So love and obedience, these two things hang together. As, as, as Christ followers, we're trying to get some kind of interest in, in, in loving and being obedient. But I think we, we kind of lost sight of the fact that, that love and obedience can be painful and it can be difficult. We always think, hey, if I love other people and love God, my life is going to be wonderful. It's going to be easy. Isn't it going to be great? Loving other people can sometimes be hard. You know, we're familiar with this idea of tough love. Tough love, when you've got to tell people things they don't want to hear and don't want to know about. It doesn't mean you don't love people. It just means that love can sometimes be a difficult thing to do. And obedience. Well, we like obedience as long as it's stuff we like to do. If it's stuff we don't like to do, then obedience gets to be a little more difficult. The ultimate act of love, Jesus says, is to give up your life for other people. To literally die. And obedience is to live the way that God wants us to live. Which means that first and foremost, in both aspects of love and obedience, we have to give up ourselves and abandon what we want to someone else. And then live for God. And not, not everybody's going to like that. Not everybody's going to understand it's going to lead to sacrifices that we don't like making, things we don't like to do. I mean, one of, the, one of the leadership principles that I've learned through the Willow Creek Global Leadership Summit is a little um, phrase, and I remember Nancy Beach, who was on their staff for a long time, would utter this phrase, and she was so sweet, you had to listen to it. And, oh, that's, such, that's a great idea, Nancy, because that's just the way she was, right? Ministry, as you say, ministry is a series of difficult conversations. Ministry is a series of difficult conversations. I mean, love, parenting, right? Parenting is a series of difficult conversations that a lot of parents don't like to have. I mean, if you're a parent who wants to have your friend as a kid, you don't want to have, I mean, your kid is a friend. That's what I meant. Sometimes I talk too fast for myself. If you're a parent who wants to have your child as your friend, you don't like having difficult conversations. We don't like saying no. We don't like making corrections. Sometimes in ministry we have to have difficult conversations. We love the idea of a covenant community. But when we're in a covenant community where we make mutual commitments to one another, right? There's, it implies accountability. And sometimes we have to go to one another and have a difficult conversation about 
worship attendance or about your moral behavior or about your financial contributions. And everybody gets all nervous about this, but this, this, is, this is a difficult conversation. Sometimes when you have staff people, you have to have a difficult conversation. This is how we have to do things. And you kind of you know, fail to do that this time. It's going to be okay. But we, it's difficult. And no one likes to have them. But their ministry is a series of difficult conversations. And God is always about having difficult conversations with them, about love and obedience. Discipleship is a series of difficult conversations that we have to have with God. About love and obedience. It doesn't mean to love and be obedient. But, but my question about this whole scene in Gethsemane is this. What is Jesus so torn up about? I mean, it's Jesus. Why, why is he sweating blood drops? There's one word in that entire passage that explains to us the thing that Jesus is really concerned about. It has nothing, well, it has something that's related to the death, it's related to the cross, but it's not about the pain and the suffering and all that stuff. So there is this phrase, right? Lord, may this cup be taken from me. Cup. Let, let this cup be taken from me. That, that's his prayer. Let this cup be taken from me. You know, and in, and in the contemporary church, right, when we... When we celebrate the sacrament of communion, we have a cup and we pour out the blood of Christ symbolically and this is the new covenant in your blood and we celebrate the cup. But for Jesus, the cup meant something completely different than what it means to us. It's a reference to the Old Testament prophets. Ezekiel once wrote that you shall drink the cup of ruin and desolation and tear at your breast. The cup is the drink of ruin and desolation, not joy and new life. You'll drink the cup of his wrath, Isaiah writes. The bowl of staggering, meaning that it'll weigh heavy upon you. Jesus wasn't sweating blood over dying. He wasn't sweating blood over taking our place on the cross. Jesus was sweating blood because he knew that something much more horrible than that was going to take place. Jesus was going to experience hell on our behalf. Worse than dying, worse than the pain of the cross, is for Jesus to experience hell on our behalf. Hell is a complete absence of God. No beauty, no joy, no general grace. The complete absence of God in any way, shape, or form in life. That's hell. There's no God in hell. And God's own son was going to experience the complete absence and void of God in his life. Some of us have lost people who are very close to us, right? Maybe a, a parent, or a friend, or a child, or a spouse has died. And we get them ripped out of our life. 
know the emptiness and the agony of feeling alone, of grief that exists. This is what was happening to Jesus. The one who said, I and the Father are one, was not going to be ripped apart from the Father. Right? You'll drink the cup of ruin and destruction and you'll tear at your breasts. It's a metaphor for being ripped away from the love of his life, from God himself. They were one, and now they're going to be ripped totally apart. And there's no sense of that relationship ever before. I mean, do you realize what's going on here? The only person who ever had complete intimacy with God, the only person who lived the perfect life, the only person who was 100% loving and obedient, Jesus, was now going to be separated from God completely. And that's a heavy burden to bear. Timothy Keller writes it this way. He says, if I, if I were to lose the love of a friend, that would be painful. If I were to lose the love of my children or my wife, that would be infinitely more painful, right? The longer, the deeper, the more intimate that love relationship, the more searing the pain when it's severed. But the son's perfect love relationship with the Father is far beyond my love relationship with my wife, as an ocean is with a dewdrop. And that's what Jesus was losing. And he wasn't only going to experience the loss of love, but on top of it was poured out the wrath, the anger of God. So he's ripped away from God, and while he's ripped away from this intimate relationship and that security and that love, now he's going to receive the wrath, the anger of God toward all sinful people. Past, present, and the future. All of God's wrath poured out on top of him as well. No wonder he's sweating blood. Love and obedience, difficult. Now you might be wondering why I haven't said anything about these dunderhead disciples, right? I mean, these are 12 dedicated people. And there's three of them, Peter, James, and John. Peter, Peter, Peter's the guy that Jesus said, you know, you're the rock upon whom the church is going to be built. I'm counting on you in the future, man. The whole, the whole history of the church is going to be counted on you. So I'm taking you in the garden with me because this is a very difficult thing. I'm taking you along. And I need you to pray and be diligent. And every time Jesus comes back, they're sleeping. The rock. He can't do it. I mean, when you have a difficult situation, right? You want your friends with you, you need support group, you need encouragement. That's who you bring along. But, but before we're too hard on these three disciples who keep falling asleep, let's remember that it had kind of been a rough week for them too. They didn't want to go to Jerusalem. They tried to talk Jesus out of it. It was finally Thomas who said, okay, if you want to go to Jerusalem, let's just all go to Jerusalem and all die. They knew... That it was dangerous for them to be there. And then they, they saw the intensity of the anger and what was going to happen to him. And they didn't know what was going to happen to them. And now their leader was going to be gone. And the rabbi, to whom they had detached their entire lives, might now be missing. Now what was going to happen? Their for future 
was up for grabs and was a question mark. They were tired too. It says in the passage, right? They fell asleep because their eyes were heavy. Have you ever prayed and then fallen asleep because your eyes were heavy? It never happened to me, but I've heard it happen to other people. Now you're praying at night and you just, you never really finish. You never get to amen because you fall asleep first. But we're missing the mark if we think that Jesus brought these three along to support them. I mean, stop and think, Jesus didn't need anybody to support him. I mean, he was Jesus, right? He didn't keep going back because, oh man, I need you guys to build me up. I need you to applaud what I'm doing. I need you to cheer me out. I need you to give me a little encouragement. That isn't why he brought him along. Listen to what he says. Listen carefully to what he says. We assume that's why he brought him along because that's what we would do. He says to them, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I need you to watch and pray, not for me, but for yourself. Because Satan's here, and he's tempting me right now, and he's going to be with you every minute of every day after I leave. And you need to watch and pray. You need to be aware of Satan's temptations and his presence. And if you can't do it in this garden, I'm not real sure you're going to do it in the future. But you need to be watching and praying to avoid Satan's temptations in your life. And his influence. You need to be alert. Don't fall asleep and certainly don't fall asleep at the switch. You see, it's not about Jesus in this moment. It's about these disciples. I mean, every time he goes back, he, I mean, you guys are sleeping. You need to be awake and praying. I mean, here's a guy who, who's sweating blood because he's going to suffer from separation from the Father and from the wrath of all of history on top of him. And he keeps going back to check on other people to make sure they're okay and they're going to be okay. This is the life of This is what love and obedience is about, right? In the midst of our own crisis and pain and difficulty, we're going back to check on other people. This is how Jesus works. Are you guys going to be okay without me? You need to watch and be diligent and pray. You see, Jesus died the death that we should have died, but he also lived the life that we should have lived. And we don't just receive the benefits of the gifts that he gives us, but we also get the benefits of his obedience. We call it righteousness. We're made right with God through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We're good with God in spite of all the ways we failed him, not because of our own stuff, because of Jesus. It's like righteousness is a gift. The Apostle Paul writes it this way. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in and through him. I mean, we know we're not obedient. We fail daily. We fail moment by moment. But Jesus was obedient for us, and because of that, we're seen as obedient just as Jesus was. You see, those three disciples are you and me. And they're being loved by Jesus in the midst of his agony and his wrestling. He's love. His focus on them represents his focus on us. He embraced God's painful and horrible will for us. 
He was thinking about us, about how, how we're going to have friends who are going to abandon us in our time of need, about, about how we're going to be separated from people that we care about and love, about how we're going to have things happen to us that just don't seem fair. He saw us with a body that gets sick and hearts that grow weak. He saw us staring at our own pit of failures and and the darkness of our own lives. He knows about our wrestling. He knows that we go to the Garden of Gethsemane a lot by ourselves and he didn't want us to be alone. And he wanted us to know that he's been there too. I mean, Jesus knows what it's like to be plotted against, and he knows what it's like to be confused, and he knows what it's like to be torn between two desires, and he knows what it's like to beg God to change his mind, to do something different. I want you to do it this way. Things that, you know, the doctors are telling me it's not going to look like this, but I, but I know you can do it. I want you to do it, God. And you know what You know what God said to Jesus, the only perfect person, his only beloved son? You know what God said to Jesus when he prayed for what he wanted? No. I like yes. I don't like no. I mean, God only answers prayers with three things, right? Yes, and then we get what we're asking for. No, you're not going to get what you're asked for. Or the worst thing to do, wait. Those are the three answers that God gives you. Yes, no, or wait. That's it. That's what we get. And here God said, no, it's not going to be your way. It's going to be my way. But my way is better than your way. And no is better than your yes. Because that's what love is really all about. And do you notice the progress of Jesus in this moment? You know, he, he's burdened with the sorrow about what's going to take place. It's heavy. It weighs upon him. He, he's got it on his back. He's, he's praying. He's sweating. He's, he's got blood coming out of every pore of his body. He goes back. He's worried about the disciples. He's torn between all of these different things. And, and he goes back a couple times and he prays the same thing two or three different times. Not, not my way. You know, not, not, is there any way this cup can be taken from me? Any way I can get out of this? Any other way? But, but not my will. That's my will. But your will be done. He does it three different times. Three different times he says the same prayer. And every time God says no. And do you, do you see how Jesus came out of that? He returned to the disciples a third time. Are you still sleeping and resting? Look. The hour has come. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise and let's go. Now, the burden is understood. God has given me direction. I'm going to be obedient. It's going to be painful and difficult, but let's go. Let's go to the cross. Let's get it done. That's what God says we have to do. It's not what I wanted, but it's what God says we have to do. It's his love and his obedience. And I'm ready to go. The wrestling was over. Jesus accepted God's direction. He made his decision to go to the cross. Because... Jesus would rather go to hell for you and me than to go to heaven without you and me. 
God's love. Will you pray with me, please? God in heaven, it's, it's not easy to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, it's not very joyful, it's not very fun, it's not very affirming. but it's the ultimate act of love and obedience. He became sin, who knew no sin, that we might become his righteousness. He humbled himself, and he carried the cross. Love so amazing, Love, so amazing. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.